Network presents 1937 in Review. Highlights from its calendar of special events broadcast during the past year. Listen, America. Join us in turning back the calendar to 30 seconds before midnight, December 31st, 1936. The chaotic rumble you hear is that of the coming events of 1937, crowding the barriers of time, impatient to be off. A world poised on the brink of the future... Wait tensely for their start, and across the continent, ready to go coast to coast for the first time, stand the 76 stations of the Mutual Network, prepared to bring you a vivid, accurate picture of history as it happened. Midnight, the events of 1937 are on their way. Twentieth day of January, the first January inauguration in the history of the United States, a man stands bareheaded on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., serious, intense, listening. Do you, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will... As the crowd press closer and millions throughout the land lean forward to loudspeakers... The president-re-elect raises his hand and answers. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. The raindrops beating in sharp staccato behind the oath, are a symbol of the fighting words to come as the president turns to deliver his address. Reviewing America's march out of the Depression in his first four years, he asks the question, have we reached the promised land of March 1933? And pointing to millions still denied the necessities of decent living, his answer is no. In that negative response, the nation hears the answer to its own unspoken thought. Will Roosevelt call a halt, or will he go on? A moment later, mutual microphones receive the ringing declaration that dispels all doubt. ...of office as President of the United States, I assume the solemn obligation of leading the American people forward along the road over which they have chosen to advance.
gathering on the heels of the inauguration come the dread waters of disaster. On January 23rd, the Ohio and Mississippi rivers burst their levees and roll out over a dozen states. The nation wants the news, and WLW in Cincinnati is on the spot. WLW's main studios have been evacuated. We're speaking to you now from temporary headquarters in the downtown section of the city. Thousands are homeless, fleeing the crest of the flood. Martial law rules. Food is dwindling. Power is failing. The need for funds is tremendous. And the Red Cross calls upon the nation to help. WLW's shortwave transmitters are covering the area. Stand by. WBAM portable shortwave outside Memphis, Tennessee. United States Army engineers have ordered all territory on either side of the Mississippi for 15 miles evacuated. We are on a road clogged with refugees traveling by mule carts, rickety autos, and on foot, making their way to the city. It's like a scene behind the front in war. If the levees give out, it will be just too bad for us. Pick us up again in an hour. WBAM, this is Memphis calling WBAM. It's over now since you were on. Why don't you come in? WBAM, WBAM, two hours since we last heard from you. What has happened? WBAM, WBAM, you're three hours overdue. We're worried. Report at once. Report at once, WBAM. WBAM. For the past three hours, the Red Cross has been using our transmitter. That's why we haven't been on. The levee's held. We're there now. What a scene this is. A thousand men battling the mighty tide with sandbags, filling them with bare hands, working like mad until they can't stand. The rain has turned to sleet. It's coming down in torrents, freezing their clothes to their bodies as they fight, fight, fight to save their homes. Floods recede. Survivors leave the rims of cities and struggle back to valleys washed with destruction. In a courtroom in Detroit, Michigan, February the 11th, man mimics nature's retreat from violence. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Joe Gentile, CKLW, bringing you an exclusive mutual broadcast from the Recorder's Court building. We're about to witness an historic truce between sit-down strikers of the CIO and the General Motors Corporation. On a table in the center of the room are the papers waiting for the signatures that will end the auto industry's spectacular three-month labor war. The next voice you will hear is that of James F. Dewey, federal conciliator. Mr. Pressman, as counsel for the CIO, will you now sign this agreement? I will. A hush falls over the crowded courtroom as Pressman's pen scratches assent. The procedure is repeated as William S. Knudsen, executive vice president, affixes his name for General Motors. And a moment later, Michigan's Governor Frank L. Murphy voices the significance of the event. The manner in which this agreement was worked out represents an exaltation of reason over brute force. The rights of both sides have been recognized and authority upheld by peaceful efforts. Economic and social changes demand new concepts, and I am confident 
that the handling of this industrial conflict will result in better relationships between employer and employee everywhere. Thus, America's first major sit-down strike results in the CIO's first major victory in its drive for collective bargaining. And as the shadow of John L. Lewis looms larger over industry, the nation hopes fervently that Governor Murphy is right. Hindenburg. Newsflash, Lakehurst, New Jersey. The dirigible Hindenburg has exploded. No one is believed to have survived. Within five minutes, WOR units of engineers' equipment and special features announcer Dave Driscoll are on their way to the scene of the tragedy. Step out of Charlie. We're still 15 miles away from Lake Earth. I can't go any faster, Dave. The road's jammed with cars. The state trooper up ahead turning everybody off to the right. Well, we've just got to get through. Come on! Come on, get off the road! We're from WOR, officer. I don't care where you're from. Get off the road. What are we going to do, Dave? Step on it. Look out, officer. We're going through. Hey! Hey! Come back here! Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Gostel speaking from the airfield at Lakehurst, a short distance away from the ghastly ruins of the once mighty Hindenburg. The scene is a bedlam of stunned, horrified crowds working desperately but vaguely in rescue operations. Survivors are being treated and rushed to hospitals as fast as possible. Most of them are badly burned and unconscious. But some, more fortunate, are able to answer questions. And one of the officers of the ill-fated ship, still dazed and shaken, is at my side now to give you a survivor's account of this awful tragedy. Sir, where were you at the moment of the explosion? On the promenade deck, leaning out of the window. And what made you aware of the explosion? I saw the people on the ground suddenly stiffen. Then I heard an explosion and noticed a glow of light at the bow. I knew immediately that the ship was aflame. And what happened then? Well, the ship crashed. Black oil and flames was everywhere. The only thing I remember after that is bending hot metal apart with my hands without feeling any pain. And then lying on the ground away from the ship. Thank you very much. Everyone is asking what caused the explosion. And right beside me now is Harry A. Bruno, Director of Public Relations for American Zeppelin Transport, to give you his opinion. Harry Bruno. I think this disaster was due to the fact that the Hindenburg was filled with hydrogen, which must have been ignited by a flash of lightning. I can see but one thing to do, that is to go forward. But this time, using non-inflammable helium instead of hydrogen. Here in America, we have an ample supply of helium, and we sincerely hope that our government will allow enough of it to be released to Germany so that airship service can be resumed next year. If this happens, the pioneering efforts of the Germans and of our own United States Navy will not have been in vain.
Pacific Motors turned on Floyd Bennett Field two days later. Beside them stand co-pilots Dick Merrill and Jack Flamby and a mutual network announcer. Dick Merrill, is your plane, the Daily Express, ready to take off on your first heavier-than-air round-trip transatlantic flight? Yes, we're all set. Check the weather and everything's favorable. We're anxious to start. What are you waiting for? Pictures of the Hindenburg disaster. We've held up our flight to take them to London. When do you plan to return? May 13th. With pictures of the coronation the day after it happened. All right. Jack Lammy, Dick has flown the ocean before, but this hop is your first. How do you feel about it? Just another routine flight. Here comes the truck of the pictures now, Jack. Let's get in the plane. Hey, yeah, Merrill. Take them away. Thanks. All right, Jack, let's go. Mutual follows the progress of the Merrill Lambie flight exclusively. WOR remains on the air all night, bringing its listeners the latest word from the flyers whose voices are rebroadcast every hour as they report to their base at Newark Airport. Twelve o'clock midnight. We're speaking from the radio room of the Eastern Airlines at Newark Airport. When last heard from, Dick Merrill's plane, the Daily Express, was nearing Nova Scotia. The operator is putting in another call now. WEEP calling KHMER. WEEP calling KHMER. Come in, please. KHMER to WEEP. Over New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. 8,000 above the overcast. All okay. 2 o'clock. KHMER to WEEP. Over Cape Race. Okay. 4 o'clock. KHMER to WEEP. Approximately 400 miles east of Cape Race. Having coffee. Can't see the water. Flying blind. All okay. 11 o'clock. We made it. We'll land soon in London in time for the coronation. May 12, 1937. With pomp and pageantry nine centuries old, a king is being crowned. Regally robed lord and ladies of Britain and her dominions beyond the seas, thronged into Westminster Abbey, watched the presentation of George VI and proclaimed their recognition. For the first time in history, the voice of a monarch taking the coronation oath is heard round the world by way of the air. I am willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the people of Great Britain, Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the Union of South Africa, of your possession and the other territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, and of your empire of India, according to their respective laws and customs. I solemnly to do. Anointed and robed, carrying in one hand the scepter of power and justice, and in the other the scepter of equity and mercy. The king is crowned. O oh God, the crown of the faithful, let me beseech thee and sanctify this thy servant, George, our king. And as thou dost this day set the crown of pure gold upon his head, so enrich his royal heart with thine abundant grace, and crown him with all princely virtues through the king eternal, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Heads it is. By choice of the coin, the mutual network wins the choice position aboard the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Puncher Train. All right, discipline, King. Bring your equipment on board. August. The mutual network prepares to observe 1937's outstanding sports event, the America's Cup Yacht Races. Heralded as the man to end America's 86-year grip on the old muck, Tom Sopwith tries vainly to outsail Harold S. Vanderbilt in the first three attempts. Conceding defeat, the English skipper sets out to make a race of it in the fourth and final run over the ten-mile course. Following brilliantly every tax jive been reached, Cameron King thrills listeners with his word picture right up to the dramatic finish. And now the ranger is going through the line... The fourth race and victory for the American defense of the Cup in 1937. And there goes the signal. The Ranger is through deep. Four and a half minutes later, the Endeavor crosses the finish line. And King captures the true spirit of her defeat. Now here we are. As the Endeavor comes right over to us, we see every man silhouetted against the sun. And it is really a gorgeous sight. Although she has lost the race, she has not lost her spirit. And right on the bridge with us today are British men from the British Man of War, York. And I'm going to ask him right now, are you British as downhearted? No! September 21st, 9 a.m. We're speaking from Mutual's position in the Empire State Building overlooking Fifth Avenue. Most of the stores on the avenue will not open today. Both sides of the street are lined with gaily colored flags and solid masses of people. And here comes the first contingent in the American Legion Parade. Fifth Avenue is a stream of tiny moving creatures stretching endlessly in both directions. 
thousands of marchers have passed the reviewing stand, and thousands more keep on coming. New York is still smiling, but it seems just a little tired. Will this thing never end? Another day and the Legion Parade is still going strong. Just 17 hours ago it began and the finish is nowhere in sight. We're carrying a packed transmitter and walking with the New York delegation. They've got the same snapping position as the first contingent that started yesterday. And as for the crowd, they just won't fall. At the very moment American veterans are parading in peace, Armies march and guns boom in China and Madrid. The hounds of war are loose again, and the world views with alarm a spread of terror and international lawlessness such as it has never known before. Once again, as forces foreign to American standards spread, the United States faces the problems of neutrality and defensive interests. The nation feels the need for leadership, and on October 5th, it hears a familiar voice expressing it. War is a contagion whether it be declared or undeclared. It can engulf states and peoples remote from the original scene of hostilities. Yes, we are determined to keep out of war, yet we cannot insure ourselves against the disastrous effects of war and the dangers of involvement. America hates war. America... America hopes for peace. Therefore, America actively engages in the search for peace. The words of President Roosevelt, spoken at the dedication of the new Outer Drive Bridge in Chicago, thrilling peace-loving nations, but received in stony silence by dictators seeking a place in the sun, are destined to become more and more significant before the year is over, when sinking of our ships and bombing of our civilians will prove them prophetic utterances indeed. But 1937 is not the whole tragedy and solemnity. It has its lighter, gayer moments. And these the Mutual Network brings you to. For the first time in her history, it brings you exclusively the voice of a queen on the air. Hello. I think that I hardly know which way to turn. I think this is the biggest day I ever had in my whole life. First, I got promoted in the fourth grade. I got my report card. And now I'm having this great big party, and I'm so excited. Well, I think I better go now. Good night. Shirley Temple, heard exclusively by mutual listeners for the first time on the air, on the occasion of her Hollywood premiere in Wee Willie Winky, an event no doubt as important to many as more history-making happenings, such as another moment in 1937. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the Commerce Hall of the New York Port Authority building where the National Poultry Exposition is in progress. 
The most interesting feature of the exhibit is the test tube experiment of artificial insemination which is being conducted. Here before me is an incubator in which are hundreds of unhatched eggs that have been produced by artificial insemination. In some of them, unborn chicks are already developing, and we're going to put an extra sensitive microphone up against the outer shell of one of these eggs and hear what the little fellow inside has to say. All right, now, here we go. The first broadcast from the inside of an egg. Chick, do your stuff. You can hear them uh, chirping anyway inside of the egg. There's the thump now. I'm sure you can hear the chicken plainly pounding on the interior of his shell. There's plenty of chatter, too. I think you could hear the chicken pecking his way out of the interior. So there's the first broadcast from within an egg. Another first for radio, although somewhat dubious. The little events as well as the great. Broadcast of a man with ticking sounds in his head. Of two chimpanzees staging a boxing bout in a zoo. Of an intercollegiate chin golf for shaving contest. Of others that sprinkled the epic sweep of 1937 with a smile or a laugh, these the Mutual Network gave you two in a year of expanding service that marked its fourth as a network and its first as a coast-to-coast system. Mutual Network review of the outstanding special events broadcast of 1937 is ended. Ahead of us now lie the unborn events of 1938, and as we stand on the threshold of these events, we can think of no more fitting way to welcome them than to introduce to you now one of the men who will guide their flow into mutual microphones. I have the honor to present Mr. Theodore C. Stribert, Executive Vice President of the Mutual Broadcasting Network. Mr. Stribert. In 1938, the Mutual Network expects to continue and improve its service to the nation's listeners. First, we shall bring you news of events as they happen, wherever and whenever they may occur. Our 76 affiliated stations, located from coast to coast, will be eager to give you the quickest, most accurate, and thorough account of the nation's happenings. Second, we hope to throw more and more light on the political and economic questions of public interest and discussion by providing the use of these facilities for those who are qualified to be heard. Third, the Mutual Network will add to your pleasure and happiness, we hope, by increasing the variety of entertainment of all kinds, which is yours at the twist of a dial. And thus we shall strive to merit your continued friendliness and interest in the further development of the nation's latest coast-to-coast network. Thank you. California. Dave Driscoll, WOR, Newark, New Jersey. Bill Welsh, KFEL, Denver. Johnny O'Hara, KWK, St. Louis. Gabriel Heater, WOR, Newark, New Jersey. 
Reggie Martin of KFOR in Lincoln, Nebraska. Red Barber, WLW, Cincinnati. Cameron King, WOR, Newark, New Jersey. Bob Elson, WGN, Chicago. Joe Gentile, CKLW, Detroit. Raymond Graham Swain, WOR, Newark, New Jersey. Ben Ryan, WGN, Chicago. Bill Slater, the Colonial Network, New England. Tony Wakeman, WOL, the nation's capital, Washington. John Steele, London, England. Take it away, 1938. This program was directed by Robert Louis Sheehan, and the cast included Ted Jewett, John Holbrook, Ed McDonald, Jack Beck, and Gilbert Mack with Milton Key at the organ. The voice of King George VI was used by permission of His Majesty. This is the Coast to Coast Network of the Mutual Broadcasting System.